Good morning. Are you awake? It's going to be a very sunny week ahead of us. Praise God. Anybody with me on that? How many shopping days till Christmas? Anybody know? We're not going there yet, right? Glad you're here today, and we are in the last day of summer school. Woohoo! One woohoo. So from that, I'm going to take that you're really enjoying the summer school and you want it to keep going. We have been looking at the lives of great men and women of faith, looked at the life, uh, life of Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah, Joshua, Moses, Rahab, David. Today, rather than looking at an individual, we're looking actually at a group of people, and we call them early believers. Now, in 2009, uh, Gloria and I took our family on a, what we would call an epic family vacation. We had never done anything like this before or since. We went to Italy, and we were wandering around Rome, or as I said this morning, we were roaming around Rome. And we came around a corner, and there before us was the structure that I had seen pictures of all my life. And it was absolutely thrilling to see, does anybody know what this is called? The Colosseum. Thank you for yawning at that point, Matt. (laughs) I never thought I'd ever see this building in person, but there there it was. Now... What a lot of people don't know is that that is more than just a beautiful old structure. This was an arena of great torture, great bloodshed. It opened in AD 80, and if you ever saw the movie Gladiator, you'll know that 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 movie was based on what happened in this building. This is a place where slaves fought to the death. You knew you were a winner if you were still breathing. You knew that you were a loser if you're dead. And this went on for, for actually for uh, hundreds of years. And this building would hold up to 80,000 people. The average number of people that would be attending at these games would be about 65,000 people. Wild animals were pit against uh, criminals, against slaves, and they tell us that the lions and tigers and bears that roamed through Italy or through, uh, through Italy and through Europe were actually almost hunted to the point of extinction because they were brought here to the Colosseum for the pleasure of the masses so they could watch the bloodshed. And so as you, as you go into the Colosseum today, this is what you're going to see. You'll see right around the middle there, that's the floor level, and beneath the floor level would be all the places where all the animals would be kept and all the slaves would be kept and, and the criminals for the games. And uh, every kind of animal was brought here to be slaughtered. There were animals from uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout Asia, Africa, uh, every kind of wild animal that you could imagine. And, and they would have these fights, these massive fights. Over one 123-day period, there were over 11,000 animals and 10,000 gladiators that fought all for 
the pleasure of the masses. The, the bloodlust was beyond anything that you and I would understand or appreciate today. But one of the things that we sometimes fail to remember is that this was also the place where Christians were slaughtered. Christians who determined that they would not turn their back on Jesus, that they would not abandon Christ, that they would not worship the gods of Rome, they were brought into this Colosseum and they were literally fed to wild animals, starving lions and bears. And the people would watch in great joy and amusement as Christians would be devoured in this, in this Colosseum. Now, we've been reading through the book of Hebrews and studying the various famous Christians in that book. And so today we come to an end of Hebrews. But I want to read to you this, this last passage. And it goes like this, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 40. And it says, Women received their loved ones back again from death. Brothers were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. And others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins and sheep, goat, and, sheep and goats uh, skins, and, and they were destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. The writer of Hebrews is linking us to these people who suffered and who were persecuted. And you're going to see why in just a few moments. But understand this, that the early believers up until the year 313 AD were, were hunted and persecuted by the Roman emperors and the Roman rulers. This is a, a picture, a rendition of the believers in the Colosseum. And you'll see there a lion preparing for the pounce. And there's Christians gathered there before the masses, crying out to God, praying together, asking God for grace and strength. You'll see that just behind that gathering of Christians who are praying are Christians who are actually on stakes. They're on crosses in the same manner that Jesus was crucified. And this, by the way, is, is all historical. This, this is really what happened. You'll see that some of them are set on fire. This picture shows us what was happening in the early days of the Christian faith. And some of you will remember that Rome experienced the Great Fire. They called the Great Fire of Rome. Some believe that Nero himself set it on fire. Um, but we do know this, that the Christians were blamed for it. And you'll see here Christians. This is an artist's depiction of, of what, what it may have looked like. But these are Christians tied to stakes. And they were set on fire and used as human torches. It, it, was, uh, it was a suffering that just goes beyond anybody's comprehension. This, friends, is what the early believers went through. And by the way, let me just say this before I go any further. Um, these, these Christians, a lot of them had the, had the opportunity 
to say, actually, I'm going to abandon Christ, I'm going to abandon my faith, and I'm going to instead to choose to, to, to give up my faith and abandon Christ altogether, and I'm actually going to worship the gods of Rome. But these, these Christians that are tied to the stake and being prepared for, for slaughter, for burning, are men and women who said, no, we will not reject Christ. We will not give up our faith. We uh, will not turn our backs on Christ. Let me just tell you this morning about the early Christians. During the communist era, you will, maybe some of you will remember when communism was at its peak. I'm old enough to remember some of that. I remember uh, pastors and, and missionaries coming to Canada and telling us about, about what Christians were going through in communist countries uh, like, uh, uh, like, well, like Yugoslavia, which was a country at that time, and, and, and obviously uh, East Germany and, and Russia and Bulgaria. And Christians would meet secretly because Christianity was outlawed. They would meet in secret at the risk of either uh, being uh, persecuted or actually put to death, definitely put in prison. One story goes that a man posing as a KGB officer burst into a gathering of Christians and in a very threatening tone with his gun poised, he tells the group that if anyone wants to leave, they could leave. And in fact, a number of people did leave that gathering of Christians. And after they left, the man put down his gun and he revealed, in fact, that he was not a real KGB officer, but that he wanted to clear out the fakes the people who were not real believers, so that they could enjoy true worship, they could enjoy true Bible study, and true fellowship. I'm going to tell you this morning, it becomes really clear whom the real Christians are when persecution begins. Can I say that again? It becomes very clear who the real Christians are when persecution begins. Because no one in his or her right mind wants to be persecuted for nothing. Only those who put their faith in Jesus, only those who follow Christ, are prepared to do something like that. Now, some of you came to church this morning thinking, man, this is, I, I wasn't expecting something so heavy. This is a heavy conversation we're having here. Can we just lighten it up a little bit? Well, there's nothing I'd love more than to send you home feeling warm and fuzzy and feeling good about life and about Christianity but I got to tell you what the whole Bible says. I'm sharing with you something today that is oftentimes skipped over or ignored, but it's there. In fact, it's like the elephant in the room. We all know it's there, but we do our best to avoid it. We do our best not to talk about it. Here's what Jesus said when he was still on the earth. In Matthew 10, 22, he said, he gave the disciples a promise. And the promise was this. He said, and all nations will hate you because you are my disciples. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. And so we have this promise. Everybody who is a Christian will be hated by the world. You will endure persecution. But the other half of that promise is that you will, in fact, be saved. Now, I just want us to stop for a moment and think about this. Because for some of us, we said the sinner's prayer, we became Christians, two thumbs up, we're all good to go, we're all going to heaven, all's fine, I've taken care of, I've got my fire insurance, I don't have to worry about going to hell. 
But folks, this is not real Christianity. This is, this is a religion that you like the sound of. What I'm talking about is a Christianity that acknowledges the persecution that Jesus promises to all who put their faith in him. In fact, here's what Paul says to the believers um, uh, that Timothy was overseeing. He says, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, would you read that for me? Will suffer persecution. Now, some of you didn't even know that was in the Bible. You, you read your Bible maybe more than once. You read over various passages of Scripture, but somehow you missed that, that verse. Paul is making it clear. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will, in fact, suffer persecution. The early Christians, they were taken, many of them, to the Colosseum where the masses watched in glee as they were devoured by wild animals. In the second century, laws were passed that said that Christians had to sacrifice to the Roman gods or face imprisonment and very probably um, uh, very probable execution. I want to ask you a question this morning. What kind of a Christian are you? Are you prepared and are you willing to face the persecution that Jesus promises to every person who calls himself or herself a Christian? Paul promised it to Timothy. He said, if you are going to be a Christian, then you're going to face persecution. Yes, it's going to be, there's all types of persecution. There's, there's light persecution when people laugh at you and mock you, make fun of you because you're a believer. For some of us, that's about all we can bear. We just about have a nervous breakdown or anybody says anything about us being Christians. We don't want people to know we're Christians. How many have said, you know, Christianity, it's a private matter. I don't talk about that. I'm going to tell you, that's, that's, a, that's a foreign idea in Scripture. Jesus says clearly that if you will confess me before human beings, then I will confess you before the Father. But if you tell people you don't know who I am or that you don't know anything about me, then when you stand before God someday, I'm going to say the same thing about you. Having people mock us or laugh at us, make fun of us because we're Christians, that's the least of our worries. We see persecution in all, all shapes and sizes. At different times through history in different countries, if you were a Christian, you were not allowed to trade. You were not allowed to do business. In communist countries, just in the last century, if you were a Christian, you, would, you could very well lose everything. You could lose your, your home, your car, your, your property, your money. You could even lose your children. That happened all the time. Because the state considered you, as a Christian, considered you to be insane. I mean, who would believe in a God you cannot see, touch, feel? Many, many Christians tell stories of how their children were ripped away from them because of their faith in Christ. Folks, persecution is what Jesus promises to us. I know some of you are sitting here thinking, man, I wish I'd gone to the beach. I wish I didn't come to church. This is just too heavy. I don't want to hear this stuff. For some of you, you're sitting here terrified and freaked right out. But here's what I want you to know. 
There are two kinds of Christian. There are what we call real Christians, and they are what we call fakes. If you are a real Christian today, here's what I can promise you. When it comes to persecution, rather than being afraid and fearful, there'll be something inside of you that is excited about the honor and the privilege of suffering for Jesus' name. It doesn't make sense. To our natural mind, it's, it sounds crazy, but here's what I want you to know. If the Spirit of God is truly living in you, then there's something inside of you that is excited about doing God's will, about standing up for Jesus. And that, my friends, is how you know whether or not you are, in fact, a believer. To survive in the early church, Christians had to come up with clever ways of communicating with each other so that people didn't know, you know, necessarily who they were. They were very, very deliberate and strategic about letting people know that they were Christians. And in those times when they were not proclaiming the gospel, but just simply wanted to fellowship with other believers, they had to come up with a way to communicate to people, I am a Christ follower. And so what they did is they came up with this simple symbol, the fish. And anybody, any of the early believers, if they saw the symbol of that fish, they recognized that that was a Christian symbol. That somewhere near that symbol, there was a gathering of believers. Somewhere near that symbol, there was a place where Christians met to worship. Why they used a fish? Well, there's a few theories, and I don't know if one is, is, uh, uh, is separate from the other. If they belong together, I think they belong together. First of all, the great apostles were, in fact, fishermen. But more important than that, the word for fish in Greek is ichthys. And if you take each of the letters of the word, of that, each of the letters in that word ichthys, here's what happens. It spells Jesus Christus Theios Sotir, which simply means Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior. The, the, what looks like an I, the Hyota, stands for Jesus, the Chai, Christos, Theta, Theu means God, e, the Y, Yos means Son, and the Sigma means Soter, Savior. This was the very first confession if you will, the very first creed, the acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you know who Jesus is, and you know what he has done for you. That is, if you are a real Christian. A real Christian understands who Jesus is. A real Christian understands that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He is our Savior. And so we call this the ichthys fish. By the way, that is why we came up with this logo. It's a stylized ichthys fish. When, the, when a person came to town, they were looking for fellowship with other believers. They wanted to do trade with another believer. What they would do is they would simply do an arc in the sand. They come to somebody, that person sounds like a Christian, looks like a Christian. 
They're, they're joyful, they're happy, they're different than that other person. But before I declare who I am, because of the risk involved, I will simply put a mark in the sand, an ark. And if that other person was a believer, then that other person would know how to complete the fish, and he would do the other ark. And that's how they would know each other. That's how they would connect. Folks, that's, that's how difficult it was to be a Christian in the first 300 years of the church. Do Christians whine and complain about it? Get angry at God? No. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that the people, the first believers that, that were persecuted, they counted themselves favored and privileged that God would count them worthy to suffer shame for the name of God. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, what I'm saying to you today will be absolute rubbish. This will not make any sense to you. You'll think, what is he talking about? I never heard anything so ridiculous. But if you are a believer, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then I can guarantee that right now the Spirit of God is stirring up your heart and you are excited about what I'm talking about today. The early believers... They had only one concern, and that concern was to honor Jesus Christ, to put him first. Now, the good news is that the severe persecution, the death in the Colosseum, the burning at the stake, the crucifixion on crosses the way Jesus died, that eventually came to an end. And, and historians know exactly when it came to an end. It, it came to an end in February 313 AD. The emperors decided that, that this was enough. They weren't going to do this anymore. And you can research it yourself and discover it. And then just a few years later, it was Emperor Constantine who had a vision and some of you remember, they saw a vision in the sky of the cross. And he was converted. And now suddenly, the Christians who were persecuted for 300 years, suddenly now, they are the favored in the empire. But that's a sermon for another day. Let's go back to the persecution, because we're enjoying this so much, aren't we? Persecution, my friends, did not just happen in the first 300 years of the faith. Persecution is something that Christians have experienced every year, every decade, every millennia since the very beginning. We saw the early Christians being persecuted by the Jews in Jerusalem. And there's just been no end to it. In fact, so much is at a part of our faith that you're going to read about it in the book of Revelation. It plays into end time uh, theology, into our eschatology. Again, which you're going to have to read on your own. But here's what you need to know. In the year 2017, here's what the reports say. In fact, I just read this this morning. For the third year in a row, the modern persecution of Christians worldwide has now hit another record high. We haven't seen so many Christians suffer as we have in this last, last year. Approximately 215 million Christians around the world are suffering every day. 
some to minor persecution to some very severe persecution. And it can be minor persecution in the sense that they're not allowed to trade or that they're discriminated against, not allowed to send their kids to school, to what we've seen on TV with ISIS chopping off the heads of believers. The interesting thing is this, friends, and this doesn't make sense, unless you see things through spiritual eyes, we know that persecution does something to the church. That wherever there's persecution, in any nation where there's persecution, in fact what happens is that the church begins to grow. It doesn't make sense, does it? In fact, one person who was in the middle uh, of the attacks from ISIS said, please pray for us. We're not praying that God would necessarily take us out of this, but that God would give us grace to get us through it. Wow. This person has a real faith. That's what I would call a giant. North Korea remains the most dangerous place on the planet for Christians. Of the 50 nations that are on the list of of nations where persecution is happening, 35 of those nations are under the under the powers, the influence of Islamic extremism. And the top 10 nations on that list of 50 nations that are dangerous for Christians are these: North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Yemen, and Eritrea. Now, I don't know if you watch the news or not, but you don't have to watch the news. It's on Facebook. It's everywhere. But you've heard of fake news. I mean, you've heard of fake news. Lots of fake news out there. And everybody's convinced that it all comes from Trump. I got news for you. Trump's not the only one. Everybody's doing it. Lots of fake news. Hard to know what the truth is. Can I tell you this morning, the thing that really concerns me is not the fake news. What concerns me are the fake Christians and the fake Christianity that we're seeing in North America and throughout the West. In fact, it keeps me up at nights because my concern as someone called by God to be a preacher of the gospel, as one called by God to com- to. to Communicate truth to the church is, God, how do I do this in a world that doesn't even know what it really means to be a Christian? For some of us, we thought all we had to do is say the sinner's prayer, put a few bucks in the offering, offering plate when it goes by, come to church once in a while, and all is good. But I can tell you, my friends, that real Christianity runs to the very core of the persecution that Jesus promises. Let me explain that. We're seeing persecution in many countries around the world, and we thank God that we are here in North America. I've heard many people pray, thank God we live here, thank you for the freedom that we enjoy, that we can worship God as we please. How many have prayed that prayer? You know what I'm talking about. But guess what? We're about to see persecution in North America in a way that we have never seen before. In fact, it has already begun. There are all kinds of reports of Christians 
who have taken a certain stand for their faith, their belief, who are now in a position to be prosecuted and actually thrown into jail, fined. There are companies that have lost their business because of the stands that they've taken. I'm going to tell you frankly this morning, the world hates Christian moral standards. The world hates our sexual standards. We're living in a day and an age that will not tolerate us because of what we believe. In fact, they will say that we are intolerant. And you know what? In some senses, they are right. Because when we study the scripture and we study what, what pleases God and what dishonors God, there are certain things that we have to embrace and hold to. We cannot be wishy-washy. We cannot be fuzzy. We have to be clear. There's no gray area. Now, please understand something today. When you became a Christian, you said, God, whatever it takes, I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to do whatever you say. That's what it means to be a Christian. You don't come uh, negotiating with God as to how you're going to live your Christian life, what you're going to believe, what you're not going to believe, what you're going to embrace, what you're not going to embrace. You don't come up with your own Christianity and say, well, this is my brand. You come to Jesus Christ, you bend your knee to him and say, Lord Jesus, I will do whatever you say. I will do whatever you do. I am prepared, Lord, to even lose my life so that I may please you. Now, I keep saying that we are constantly being tested. We say that when you go to school, the only way that you can advance to the next grade, the next level, is that you have to pass certain tests. Whether you're able to pass those tests or not determine whether or not you have grasped the material, whether or not you're ready to advance to the next level, whether you are, in fact, whether or not you have, in fact, learned what you needed to learn. Because anyone can say, I'm a Christian. And a lot of people do. In fact, I've heard people get angry and say, how dare you suggest that I'm not a Christian? Who are you to say that I'm not a believer? Well, quite frankly, none of us has the right to do that. But we know who is a believer, Jesus says, based on their fruit. We know whether or not you are a follower of Jesus Christ, whether or not you are a true Christian, based on the fruit that comes from your life. So we don't judge you. You're, the fruit of your life is what judges you. Jesus says, can, can, uh, can we get apples from an orange tree? Can we, we, obviously we can't. Whatever's in your heart, that's going to be produced. That's what you're going to produce in your life. And the way that we are tested, the way that we discover where we're at spiritually, it's by the great test, the greatest test that any human will ever face, and it's the test of persecution. Let me say this to you today. If you love your money, if you love your investments, if you love your property and your possessions more than you love God, well, you will especially be vulnerable in fact, Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money because you're going to love the one and hate the other and hate the other and love the other. 
We live in a nation that has got great wealth. And for many of us, we've got our retirement funds, we've got our house paid for, we've got, we've got lots of great possessions, great things that, quite frankly, we don't want to give up in any way. But the thing is this, if you love your possessions, if you love your things, if you love your money more than Jesus, then we have to conclude that you probably are not a Christian. In the last days, we're going to be tested. Look at this. Revelation 13, 17, Jesus says, And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. We've already seen this in communist Russia in the past century. Christians were not able to buy. They were not able to sell. Why? Because they were not card-carrying communists. They refused to surrender to the state. Instead, they decided they were going to worship Jesus, even if it meant losing everything. My friends, I'm going to tell you, we're coming very close to that time once again. But who would have believed that would happen under free enterprise and capitalism? But that's exactly what's about to happen. And you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to follow Christ? Am I going to obey Jesus? Am I going to hold to the standards of Christ? Am I going to do what his word tells me to do? Or is trade, selling, buying, having, owning, is that more important to me? Jesus says, you can't love both God and money. I believe that Satan knows exactly how to get to us. It's through our money, through our possessions, through the things that we own. And so I'm going to tell you this this morning. These early Christians, these early believers, they were prepared to lose it all for the sake of Christ. Look what it says here in Hebrews 11.35. Women received their loved ones back again from death, but others were tortured refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Wow. Are you holding on so tightly to your things that you are prepared to abandon Christ? These early believers, they're saying, take it all. I don't want you to take it all. I'd like to keep my money. I'd like to keep my house. I'd like to keep my possessions. But if it comes to my money and my possessions and my things versus Christ, I'm taking Jesus every time. What about you? Some of us are holding on so tight to the things of this world we don't really want to go to heaven. We don't really want to see Jesus because we've got heaven right here, right now. I was telling somebody this past week, one of the wonderful things that my grandmother passed on to me, for which I will be forever grateful, is she used to talk about going home. She used to say, I can hardly wait to go home. I want to go home. I'm tired of this old world. I want to be with Jesus. And I said, Grandma, that means you have to die. 
said, yeah, that's right. I want to be free of this old world. I'm ready to meet Jesus. That put within me a great joy. That put within me a great expectation, a great desire to see Jesus. It made me realize that this life, this world, this is not my home. I'm, I'm just passing through. That's what it says in Hebrews 11. You go and read it later. I'm a foreigner here. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, I was born in Canada, but the reality, folks, is I am a foreigner here. This world is not my home. My home is in heaven. And when I get there someday, and by the way, I know I'm going. Did you hear that? Some are saying, oh, Pastor, how can you be so sure of that? Well, it's not because I'm a great guy. He goes, hallelujah, sister. Do you know why I'm going? Because I put my faith in Jesus. And I'm saying, God, I don't know if I can face the persecution, but I know with the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit within me, Jesus, you and I, we can do anything. This world is not my home. And folks, that's precisely the way these early believers were. Great faith. Great faith. They trusted. They trusted God. They trusted Christ. And nothing in this world was going to tear them away from Jesus. What about you? Are you a real Christian? Or are you a fake? Some of us need to go home and have some conversations with our kids, with our spouse, with our friends. We need to do some serious soul searching. Am I a real Christian or am I a fake? You see, a real Christian says, Jesus, I want to serve you and I'm willing to lose it all but I'm not willing to lose you, Christ. Do you know Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was prepared to go to the cross? Now stop and think about that for a moment. He knew, as everybody in Judah knew, that he knew what a crucifixion meant. He knew that he would be paraded naked without a loincloth on like they have in the movies. No loincloth. He would be paraded naked before his countrymen, before the people he preached to, before the people whom he healed, that his hands and his feet would be spiked to a cross, that, his, that he would die in great agony and suffering. He knew that that's what was ahead of him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed, he could have done this instead of praying. He could have said, guys, I'm out of here. I know it's coming. I don't think I can face this. I don't want to go through this. I'm going to hide. I'm going to run. I'm going to, I'm going to make myself scarce because the guards are coming. They're going to be here any minute. I wonder if I told you that in 10 minutes, militia would arrive here and put to death anybody sitting here because you're a Christian. I wonder how many would be making a beeline for the door. I wonder how many would be saying, God, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm sitting here because you are more important to me than my life. Jesus refused to run. He refused to hide, even though he knew the guards were coming to take him to the cross. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he waited. And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're studying Hebrews 11, Go to Hebrews chapter 12, and it says that Christ, for the joy that was set before him, 
went to the cross. He was prepared to be persecuted and put to death for the glory of God. Now, I want you to look at this verse, friends, because if you look at the first part of this verse, it says, women receive their loved ones back again from the dead. Now, that's my kind of religion. My prayers are answered. God comes through at the last minute. I get my miracle that I was hoping for. I get the miracle that all the preachers on TV say I'm going to get. I'm going to get that divine transfer. Hallelujah. All I got to do is send in 10 bucks. I'm going to get a prayer cloth. I'm going to get holy oil. I'm going to get water from the Jordan River. And the miracle's going to come. But folks, that's half the gospel. That's not the full gospel. And everybody knows that half a gospel is heresy. The other half of the gospel says, but others were tortured. Others were put to death. Now, some of you, when you read your Bible, you, and you're living this Christian life, and you say, you know, I pray these prayers, and God's not coming through with those miracles, and what's wrong with my faith? Do I not have enough faith? Am I not spiritual enough? Have I got sin in my life? Why are the miracles coming through? And I'll tell you why, friends. Sometimes it's God's will to do a miracle for you, and sometimes it's not God's will to do a miracle for you. You're not going to hear that on TV preaching, because that doesn't get donations. That's why you got to come to church. I'm telling you today, friends, when I began to understand the significance of this verse, it revolutionized my understanding of God and the Scripture. Because at the end of the day, folks, it's not about Alan Duncalf. It's not about me and what I want and the miracles that I want and the healing that I want and and I, I want this God and I want that. How many know today God is not the genie in the lamp? He's not Santa Claus. God has called us to be his servants. God has called us to come in full surrender and say, Lord Jesus, I want my life to bring glory to your name. If it means living, well, hallelujah. If it means dying, well, hallelujah. But whatever brings glory to your name, oh God, that's what I want to do. That, my friends, is what real Christianity is. It says, God, here am I. Use me any way you want. If it's to live, great. If it's to die, great. Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't care if I'm alive or dead, but I want to live my life to bring glory to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what it means to be a Christian, my friend. And I'm going to ask you again, are you a fake or are you real? It's time to have some conversations. When you go for lunch today, ask the people you're eating with, are you a fake or are you real? I have a feeling that some will burst out laughing because they're going to be so uncomfortable with that question. Are you a fake or are you real? Hebrews 11 ends with these words, all these people, the ones that got the miracles and the ones who didn't get the miracles, the ones who were tortured, earned a good reputation because of their faith. Their faith in Christ was more important than anything else, yet none of them received all that God had promised. You know, I keep praying for a revival I'm going to tell you, if God sends that revival, I believe persecution will come with it. I know some of you are thinking, okay, Pastor Allen, quit praying for revival. It's like when the snow was coming in January, it wouldn't stop coming, and someone put up a sign, whoever's praying for snow, stop praying for snow. 
persecution's coming, friends. Jesus promised it. I'm going to tell you at the end of the day, it's not what we own that matters. It's not the stuff that we have. It's not our reputation, our fame, our fortune. It's that our hearts belong to Jesus and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? We're back to the Colosseum. This had a profound effect on me when I was there in 2009. You can see in the very corner of the picture across. There's a plaque there with that cross, and here's what it says. The amphitheater, that is the Colosseum, was consecrated to triumphs, entertainments, and the unholy worship of pagan gods. But it's now dedicated to the sufferings of the martyrs. You know what a martyr is? It's somebody who's died for Jesus. This amphitheater, this Colosseum is now dedicated to the sufferings of the martyrs purified from unholy superstitions. My friends, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart right now. Because Satan comes with us with all his attacks, with his persecutions, with the mockery, the hatred, the attacks from our government, the attacks from the media, the attacks from our culture. But I'm going to tell you, at the end of the day, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. All of Rome attacked Christians. Christians have been attacked throughout the centuries. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules, he reigns, and our persecutions and our suffering are but for a moment. We will spend eternity with our Lord if our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Would you stand with me, please? God, we think 2,000 years ago, Christians dying by the hundreds, persecuted, put to death. Great and godly heroes of the faith. Fast forward 2,000 years later to a time when there are 2.2 billion Christians on the earth, the greatest religious and faith group in the world and we see that Jesus Christ is victorious God we pray right now that you would help us to examine our hearts to see whether or not we're fake or real we know Lord that we're real if something is stirring in our hearts and there's a joy and excitement about serving Jesus to the point of laying down our lives for Christ losing it all for the sake of the name God, do a work in our hearts today. And we pray that as we go from this place, it would be the fresh passion, a fresh zeal for Christ, that we would be prepared and willing to do whatever it takes for Christ's name. Because when we stand before Jesus someday, Jesus, we want you to identify us as your own. We don't want to hear. 
We do not want to hear, I don't know who you are. So God, we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Amen. 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 Tell the person beside you, don't miss out on heaven.